If you like the Live Wild podcast and enjoy hunting-related apparel, I've got you covered. I just launched some great t-shirts, hats, and sweatshirts under my own Live Wild brand. You can find them now on my website, remywarren.com. I just want to say thanks again, everyone, for all the support, and I really hope you enjoy these designs as much as I do. Who knows? Maybe you'll head over to my website and find your next lucky hat. I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is brought to you by Mountain Tough and Yeti. A lot of the tactics I talk about here require you to be in top physical shape. So I partnered with Mountain Tough to help get you ready for the mountain. With their science-based hunter-specific training app, you'll get in shape and mentally tough, able to tackle any hunt. Because we really believe this will help you be more successful, as a listener to this podcast, we're giving you six free weeks to get you started. Just use code LIVEWILD. Yeti's been a longtime supporter of mine and has some of the best products out there, including their just-released 15 and 60 Go Boxes. These are durable, stackable, dust and watertight storage that's great for organizing and transporting all your favorite gear to and from the field. I actually got to test some of these this past season and put them through the paces traveling from hunt to hunt. It kept my stuff accessible and protected. Practical in so many situations, from raft trips down the river to elk camp in the Rockies, it's nearly indestructible, go anywhere storage that's now available. Hey everyone, welcome back to Live Wild Podcast. Now today, we're doing a live Q&A from the Pope and Young Club Convention in Reno, Nevada. We're here surrounded by some of the best animals taken with a bow and arrow across North America. It seems like a fitting place to talk hunting. So let's now dive into the questions. All right, well, thank you guys so much for showing up. Uh, This is one of the things that I really look forward to is to get to meet people face-to-face, have some conversations about hunting. Any day that I get to talk about hunting is a good day for me, and then any day that I get to go hunting is a better day. So (laughs) if I can't be doing it, I might as well be thinking about it or talking about it. What what I want to do today is Nico's got a a mic, and I, I just like to open it up and have a conversation with people. And, you know, if you've got questions on anything, I'll pretty much answer any question. And I, I don't know, I think it's just a lot of fun to be able to, to know what people want to know. And, or, or at least, like, you can stand here and I can tell you what I think you want to hear, but I'd rather know what you guys want to hear and then talk about that. So uh, we've got a microphone, and if you could t- talk in the microphone. And if you guys are okay with it, we're going to record this for a podcast. It's fun to just be able to share that with other people because a lot of the questions people have, other people want to know and maybe don't get the opportunity to be here in person and and talk about it. So if you don't mind, just save your questions for the microphone. You can say your name. You don't have to give your last name if you don't want. And uh, if you're wanted by the government, you know, give a fake name. (laughs) So we'll just get it started off. You know, I can, I also like to, I mean, I'm sure, you know, most of you that have shown up probably know me, but I always kind of like to give a little bit of background. So I I actually grew up here outside of Reno, Nevada. Um, This is kind of my hometown. So it makes it easy for me to show up to the show. You know, we've got people that came from Newfoundland and I just, I was complaining about driving across town in the traffic, you know, so I've got really nothing to complain about today, but so I grew up hunting a lot of the areas around here, high desert stuff, archery, mule deer is, is one of my big passions because it's funny, you start to go out and hunt all these other things and it's the thing that you started hunting on that you kind of almost have this addiction to or this special respect for because of the challenge and, and maybe that history of it, knowing how hard it was to take my first Pope and young buck with a bow and going like, just remembering that struggle and those things and learning on that deer. So that, that's one of the things that I really enjoy. And then also growing up in Nevada, we have a lot of sheep and I'm a fanatic for wild sheep. So it's kind of one of the reasons that I, I stay grounded here is because we've got so many sheep outside of the state of Alaska, uh, which is cool. We, you know, over the course of my life, I'll hopefully draw some more sheep tags here and get to go with friends and family and stuff like that. So we've actually got desert bighorns, California bighorns and Rocky Mountain bighorns. So to be able to hunt three species of sheep in one state is pretty awesome. Uh, so that's kind of a little bit of my background. And then, uh, yeah, I just I started filming my own stuff, doing solo hunter. I don't know. I just I, I was always the type that I never really had somebody to go out hunting with me. 
I guided uh, in the, the whole fall season and would try to be out in the field as much as I could. Uh, so it was like I just go out and be by myself and wanted to be able to share that with friends and family and would film it. And then an opportunity popped up. I think I saw it on, I can't remember, maybe YouTube, maybe on Outdoor Channel. Like, hey, if you got stuff, self-film. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've got 20 hunts. And it turns out that Tim Burnett, the guy that started that, lived like five miles away from me. Never knew it, never met him before. And uh, so that's how we, we kind of got started with that. And then fast forward here, I, I still uh, run my outfitting business. I've got an outfitting business in Montana. Uh, still run that and have guided all over the world, Africa and New Zealand, uh, different places across the U.S., New Mexico, just all, all kinds of places, mostly chasing elk and deer, guiding here, and then uh, some sheep guiding and stuff like that. And yeah, and now I'm here at Pope and Young Club talking to you guys. So thank you guys so much for coming out at 10 a.m. on a morning after a, a late banquet for most people. So I appreciate it. And let's get the the questions going. If anybody has, just feel free to raise your hand, pick you out of the crowd, and anybody that's not afraid, get it started. Uh, how's it going? My name's Cody. Uh, I got a couple questions, but I guess my uh, biggest question is about archery, mule deer, backpack hunting. Uh, so I want to go on um, that style of hunt to a place that I've never been before. So I want to know if you have any tips for a place that you're not able to scout ahead of time or that you've never been or if you would recommend kind of not putting your eggs all in one basket and uh, staying mobile, even though it is my kind of my goal to do the backpack style hunting. No, I would absolutely do the backpack style hunting, especially when it comes to mule deer. And the, the thing that I would look for when I, if I were doing that kind of hunt, I would look for an early season because it, if you aren't going, if you're going into an area that you don't know, there's a couple key things when you're talking about early season mule deer is just really designed for that backpack style hunt because they are up in the higher reaches of the area. They're in that more alpine country. So you can immediately narrow down to finding like, I'm finding mule deer on summer range. And that is an incredible experience. Uh, that's one of the things that I love about mule deer hunting, especially growing up hunting Nevada is I could go have a sheep hunting experience every year on early season mule deer. Uh, it's nice weather, you know, you can go in a little bit lighter with less gear than you might need in September, October, November. Uh, I find those early, um, maybe there's, there's some August seasons around the country. There's some September, early September seasons as well. And they're still up in the Alpine. They're in those bachelor groups. You see a lot of deer. Uh, they're out in the open when they're fully velvet. Uh, dealing with velvet antlers isn't my favorite thing to do, but hunting velvet bucks is because they're, they're a little bit easier to find. They're out, they're bachelored up, like targeting that habit of mule deer is a lot of fun. And it lends itself to that backpack hunting experience. And you're already limiting the amount of hunters that you're going to run into. So when I plan a mule deer hunt with a bow, I generally look for areas that check those things off the list. Okay. It's got maybe some wilderness area or some high Alpine area. It's got good summer range place where I can go look for bachelor deer. And in that country, it really lends itself as well to some stockability because, uh, when, once you get above the timber line, if you're in, in an area that has above the timber line, not as many thick places to bed. Now they definitely will drop down, but you might find bedding areas behind rocks and cliffs and other things, which made, makes for a really good approach. So I love everything about that hunt. And I definitely would suggest that would probably be the hunt if somebody was thinking about that. that those would be the things that I'd look for. And that would be kind of what I target in looking for a hunt. So areas that have that earlier season from the middle of August through first part of September, and then that good Alpine country and, and get after it. Uh, with regard to the three species of sheep in Nevada, um, which of the, th I imagine either for yourself or for clients, you've hunt guided or hunted all three, right? Yes, I have. Um, of the three, which do you consider to be the most challenging or is there any difference? That's a good question. It depends on where you're at. I mean, uh, in the state of Nevada, the Rocky Mountain Bighorn's pretty difficult because it's just the country that they live in is a little bit more remote than, and, and now we've had a lot of die-offs. So the, the tags are very limited there. We, we just don't have the Rocky mountain populations. Now other places that I've hunted Rocky mountain bighorns, um, it can just depend on the area. Uh, same with the desert sheep. I, I really love in the state of Nevada, I love hunting desert sheep and I love hunting the California bighorns, uh, but desert sheep's probably pretty high on my list. And it, it's, it's, I think you can go into an area and it can be, 
you know, sheep can be sheep. You can be in an area where they aren't really pressured. They're around roads and other things, and it can be as easy as anything. And then they can be as difficult as anything as well. In some of the areas that I've hunted in Nevada specifically, I like targeting those. Like there's people that'll be hunting the easier stuff. And a lot of the big rams tend to disappear, especially when the season starts, because there might be five, six, seven tag holders, and they've got multiple people spotting. And that pressure just pushes those big rams into a place where they can go disappear and where people don't necessarily want to go to look for it because they're seeing plenty of sheep other places. And by doing that, we've found some really good rams. Also by hunting later in the season after the initial part of with friends, they always say like, I drew a sheep tag. What should I do? And I was like, okay, go scout a lot, you know, know what that area has as far as, you, you know, what you can expect for trophy koi, scout it ahead of time go look at the sheep that are in that area because you'll know what you know it's kind of like if you're on an easter egg hunt you don't know if there's any easter eggs out there or whatever you don't know what you're looking for but if you go ahead of the season before everything's pressured you know what might be in the area and then i think the challenge is just finding that ram that that you want or maybe the one that you're looking for have you hunted the Stillwater range for deserts i have yeah uh, what, what was your experience times. like in that range so the the first time I hunted in the still waters with someone, uh, it was, it was difficult. Well, a growing up, like not necessarily some of my first sheep hunts were actually in the still water. So we would go there. We would, we, I would scout preseason and we would see a lot of like the smaller age class Rams. And then what we ended up doing is going into like non-traditional sheep country. And I found, I was actually my dad who had the tag we found a ram in there that was a really good ram. It was by himself in a timbered canyon. And you go, and, and I don't even, I think we got the tip from guys that were looking to hunt. They were chucker hunting and maybe looking for, and they're like, yeah, we saw a sheep in this canyon. You go, the sheep in there? No way. We went in there and sure enough, uh, a really big old age class ram. Unfortunately, the stock didn't work out and that sheep disappeared and we never were able to turn him back up. But, you know, over the years, you know, we've hunted a couple different areas in there. And, and I think that one of the things is, you know, the, th the funny thing about sheep is you can find them in an area and then they'll just disappear. And then I think that what I've found is they, they become nomadic almost. And they'll, just, especially the desert sheep, you'll, you'll find them, you'll see them, you'll see them. And you hear this all the time. Guys scouted a ram, that ram disappeared. And then somebody killed it 15 miles away. And that's, that's the thing about desert sheep is if you've found one you want, it's kind of hard to keep tabs on them because they do that real nomadic thing, you know, and they, they will travel, they will cruise. And, and it's really, you know, part of the sheep species, but also kind of how those diseases spread so much as a sheep will be in this herd and he'll live his life in that range. And then one day decide to go three ranges over and, you know, go into a different unit. But yeah, they, there's just, it's a lot of fun kind of trying to figure those sheep out for sure. So hunting desert sheep is, if you get the opportunity, draw that tag. It's an incredible hunt. Do you find that uh, deserts move at night? I did when I hunted them. I hunted them in 91 here, doing on resident tag, and the buggers moved. Do you, do you see that commonly? Because I didn't see it with our other sheep species. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Because when we're hunting, if I'm hunting California bighorns, we'll put them to bed and we'll be there first thing the next morning and they're there. My brother this year had an archery, or uh, two years ago, archery desert tag. And every sheep he put to bed was nowhere even close. And yeah, it was a, and he was hunting in an October season, which I've actually never hunted uh, sheep during deserts during October period. And they were, they were rutting at this, in this particular area as a Northern area. And yeah, I mean the, the best ram he found, it was like consistent and then did that exact thing, like middle of the night gone. And the ram he ended up getting is because he could not, he would find them and then they would just disappear at night. And so he found a good ram and was like, I got to He pretty much ran to it to get, to try to cut it off. Cause he's like, I know one, once morning hits that I'm not going to, he just kept running into that every single day. Uh, those, those sheep disappear. I say everyone I saw in the afternoon and went to bed excited, figuring I'm going to get him the next morning was gone. So. Yep. I wondered if I was unusual, but apparently No, they, they do do that, and, and certain times of year they do it more, I, I feel like. You know, it, it just depends. I think when they've just got, you know, I, I've seen them, like, I've been scouting too, and I'll go, and we'll go, and we'll see a ram, and we'll watch that ram, and he'll 
you bed down there and we get up the next morning and he's there and then it's like hunting season rolls around and i don't know it's like that sixth sense or something but they will start to wander in the evenings for sure hi remy hey uh my name is brian uh it's just i'm a relatively new bow hunter i've been going for about 10 years and i've moved from alberta where you can you know hunt by yourself and vast wilderness to Houston where now I'm going to be going on basically guided hunts. But my question was uh, about, you know, apart from going on guided hunts, learning from guides like yourself and reading about bow hunting and stuff, what's, what, what else do I need to look out for to, to make sure I'm becoming a better bow hunter over the next 10 or 20 years? Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing about bow hunting is there's a few skills that differentiate bow hunting from other kinds of hunting. The first is proximity to the animal. You have to be close. So thinking about ways to quiet down your setup that just paying attention when you're moving in. I think so many bow hunters or people starting bow hunting make the mistake of focusing on things that, you know, as a more experienced bow hunter don't necessarily matter. Like a lot of guys will be sneaking in there, like looking at every step and yeah, you got to be quiet but they're looking down and not where they're going and the animal's sitting there staring at them. And if they were paying attention, they could have avoided that. And then the same thing, like looking where they're going, but they aren't placing their feet and they're making a lot of noise. So just being aware of like, how can I get close to this animal and what do I need to do? And it's, it's a level of paying attention that I think a lot of bow hunters are missing. It's like, you know, kind of some of it's like through experience you go okay well this is how I, I move around these animals when I'm hunting elk I'm moving completely different than when I'm hunting mule deer and just identifying like okay I got to get close but what's a weakness of this animal and what's a strength of this animal so really just diving into the behaviors of the animals you're hunting and then the other big component to bow hunting is the bow and and being a good shot in the field isn't necessarily the same as being a good shot in your backyard at a paper target when you're standing on level ground. I think that the the people that I know that are really good bow hunters know how to execute those shots in the heat of the moment when there's a lot of varying factors, wind being a big factor, uh, obstructions being a big factor, you know, just like slope of a hill being another really big factor. And even just being at full draw for longer than normal. So really emulating your practice based on hunting. I rarely shoot at dots on a target. I'll get a 3D target or whatever, and I'll put that target in. I just take it outside. I, I mean, I'm fortunate that we can go into the mountains and whatever. But, you know, if you don't have that, trying to, like, simulate your hunting practice as, like, something that you would encounter while you're hunting. Shoot through brush. Like, put your target where there's obstructions and other things and, and just really learn the flight of that arrow and how to connect with the target in bad situations. I know so many bow hunters or people getting into it, it's like, oh, they go out and they shoot their bow when it's a nice day. Like, when it's windy and raining, that's when I, I'm like, I better take advantage of this crappy weather right now and go shoot my bow because I know that those are going to be the, the scenarios that I'm going to encounter in the field. And that, like, if you can do that, you really train your body to, to make and execute those shots in the situations. I've never had, like, a – if I think about it, I've rarely had that perfect shot like you see, you know, you almost say, like, see on TV. It's like very rarely does it all seem very perfect in the moment. And so just understanding, okay, when to shoot and, and that kind of thing is really going to make you a better bow hunter because it's going to make you more successful when you get that one opportunity maybe you go hunt hard all week you want to make good on that one opportunity you get so just doing that right kind of practice helps yeah remy any any tips for vetting flying services for example a diy moose hunt in uh, alaska for uh, moose or caribou yeah uh you're talking just like not a not a commercial airline just like a, a bush plane yeah, you know, I think that, that that can be one of the hard things. There's no, like, it's very hard to find a Yelp on a bush plane, you know. Um, a lot of it I just go off of recommendations. But when you choose a bush pilot, you are trusting your life with that person. One of the things that I would do is, you know, some of them I've, I've actually called references of bush pilots. And a few of the things that I ask is, like, how organized was the guy? Because I've flown with very disorganized bush pilots and I know friends that have flown with very disorganized bush pilots and I've had friends that have been left for like a, a week or two. Whoops, got, forgot about that guy. Something came on me, whatever, you know, and it's just like uh, not, didn't have that. And that was before we had 
in reaches and all this other stuff. Now I'm not as concerned about it because you can at least have some kind of device where you can communicate with the outside world. I, the first time I got dropped off in Alaska, we didn't have any of that. And you're like, all right, see ya. Hope to see ya. Hopefully uh, a 9-11 event doesn't happen or something like that. And we're just stuck out here with no communication. Uh, now, you know, I think the other thing is, it's just, it's just like anything with whether you're going on a guided hunt or whatever. If you can talk to people that went in there and, and maybe even talk to people that were, you know, sometimes they'll just give you a list of guys like these guys got good, great stuff and had a great time. Maybe talk to the people that didn't, the guys that uh, had bad weather and whatever and how that person operated in those like adverse conditions. Because I, I always like to see, you know, not the stories of the people that were successful, because I think sometimes success clouds people's judgment on the experience. I'm more of a person that's based off the experience. So I want a guy that, that is like, we had a great hunt. It was tough conditions. Animals weren't around, whatever. But like this guy did his job. Like he, he was very, you know, he helped us get in. Uh, he, you know, was communicated well with us. Seemed like he had a good backup plan. Stuff like that. Those are the things that are important to me because I want to just go out and have a good experience. You know, a lot of people go out and they're like, oh, it was a it was a shitty hunt or it was like with a guided hunt. They may be like, it was the worst hunt I've ever been on, but I got a good bull. So it was good. Right. And I think for for me, that's not what I'm looking for. Um, I'm more looking for that that good experience. And then let me do the rest. You know, I'll just let the animals be the animals and success come or go. But if everything else is is good, then that's a good experience. So I, I kind of try to focus the questions on that experience. And that's you can kind of separate the good ones from the bad ones by doing that. Or at least I've noticed that in my time doing some of this stuff. Hey, yeah. I'm Shane. I'm a guide in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, I want to bring the questions back east, specifically for caribou back in Newfoundland, since how the popularity of that hunt seems to be growing, not necessarily in numbers, but there are more people pursuing that particular hunt. And I've noticed people coming there sometimes a little bit unprepared for the particular ground and weather conditions that they're going to be hunting in. And I'm just wondering if you could give people a little bit of a heads up for um, what they can expect in that that neck of the woods, because I can tell people all day, but it's just one on one. But you're talking to loads of people, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's I mean, you know, everybody kind of if you're going on a new hunting experience or you're going somewhere new, you know, you might not be prepared for the type of terrain and, and things that are going to be there. Uh, wet weather hunting, really, really wet areas. I think, you know, as a person that grew up in Nevada and it's like dry desert, when the first time I went to like Southeast Alaska, I'm like, where, where did I get myself? You know? Um, and you've learned a lot of things along the way. I think one of the things that people aren't prepared for and is, and you probably run into this is in that wet country, almost overdressing where they've got, they've got their base layer on, then they've got their pants on, then they've got their rain gear over their pants and their gaiters over that. And they start to walk and they sweat and they burn out and they're hot and their feet are in the, it's like almost like walking through snow and they get a 300 yards away and they're like, ah, I wasn't ready for this, you know? And I think that sometimes the first thing is just like people realizing it's okay to in wet country. One thing that's like, it's okay. You're going to be wet. Whether you want to be wet from the outside in or the inside out, you're probably going to be wet, but maybe not overheat while you're doing it, you know, in those uh, places where it's boggy, I don't know, tussocky, all that kind of stuff, you know, thinking about, okay, well, I'm going to go in here. It's still going to be physical. It might be flat, but really the miles that I'm walking in this terrain is just as hard as walking up a mountain or other things. And so dressing appropriately and not burning out. You see so many people, it was a guide, I don't know, we, we get it when we're elk hunting and we start to go up the hill and they've got a, a jacket for 20 below. They've got all this stuff on. They start to sweat. They start to overheat. They're like, this is hard. This is heavy. It's, it's, they get uncomfortable. And then they get in their head like, I can't do this because the first little bit of a climb, the first walk through the bog, the first whatever, like, oh, this is, this is hard. And some of it just comes to like mental preparation as well as, you know, that physical preparation too. There's a lot of things people don't do ahead of, ahead of time. I don't know if that kind of answers the question, but, you know, I think there's a lot of like a lot of factors. And, and then just, you know, people just being prepared for if you're if you're going with somebody that knows the area better, listening to that sage advice, it, it, the, the best advice you can get is from someone that's had experience. 
And so just kind of paying attention to that experience, you know, if you're, if, if anybody's listening and going on kind of some, a new, new adventure, a new kind of thing, think about things you might encounter, talk to people that have been there and then heed that advice. Hey there, uh, my name is Steve. I'm also from Newfoundland, but just for the record, we live 4,000 miles away and two hours apart. He was the first person I saw when I walked into the convention <laughs> on Wednesday. We've never met, so just a coincidence. Uh, so my question is a little uh, less about hunting and, well, kind of more about social media. So a few years ago, I kind of got bored with hunting, believe it or not. I had that little down spurt. So I started doing some filming. Well, I've always done it, and uh, I got a son now who's 10, and in Newfoundland, we, they can't hunt until they're 16. So we kind of started a little YouTube channel and keeps him involved and keeps me interested. So I totally hats off to you, hats off to you for all the self-filming. Every time you make 25 trips back to get your camera, right? It's just <laughs> such a pain in the hole. But uh, my, my question kind of is, like we're doing it for fun, but like anything, it starts to take off. I mean, we're up around 10,000 subscribers now, so it, again, totally for fun. But my question is, should I be aiming for content or quality of the footage, be, like for, for viewers? Because like I'm really not going to change my content, but like I'm using a GoPro and a and a, a Sony uh, camcorder, right? So every, right now everyone is using DSL, DSLRs and stuff. Yeah. So do you think that affects the viewers the quality? Because my theory is you're watching it on your phone, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I mean my and this I don't know if this is a weird way to answer, but my thing is like I've never really ever made anything for someone else. I always make things for what I like. Because I don't really, I mean, no offense to anyone that's watching, I don't really care. If I don't like it, it's its really for me. I started filming and doing things for myself. And that's the way that it's like things that I felt like I really wanted to share with my family. And, and you know, for me, is like I, I like the quality thing. So sometimes I think that, like, I could probably do more stuff. But it's just, it's personal. I think it's just got to be personal preference. Um, and I wouldn't spend so much time worrying about the quality of it as opposed to, like, the story you're telling and, and why people are engaging with what you want to see. I like a good story, you know, and, and I actually got to be, uh, it, it was really cool because I got to be a judge of a film contest festival thing through Western Hunter magazine uh, recently. And the, the ones that I chose as winners, I would say the quality was less than other ones that I think had really good quality, but they just didn't have that story they didn't have that person like i didn't connect with it as much and there was one that was like i don't even think they didn't get the kill shot or anything but like i really liked the story that they were telling and they did a good job with it and it was rough and it was this and there was that but it had what i enjoyed and you know and sometimes like i i like a combination of the things too so sometimes i'll put out something that's we go like, oh, we want to make something that's really high quality, and if we can do that, great. And then I'll go do a self-filmed one that's like, yeah, it was pretty rough. But people get the gist of it, and they understand the, the struggle of it, and there's that story behind it. So I think it's, you know, first and foremost, kind of making the things that you like. And then I think the story and the content is the most important portion of, of sharing things. Because that, that's what people connect with, and that's what people want to see. 100%. So do your buddies hate you as much as mine do for passing them the camera when they go out with you? Do you do, you, do, you do that much? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You have a photographer now, so that helps. But starting out, like, my buddies are like, oh, crap, he's doing another video, right? Yeah, yeah, my brother's funny because, like, me and him would always go hunting, and he's, he's like he's just one of those people that's real bad with a camera. So he'd be, like, filming, and it's like, oh, I'll be like, oh, did you get it? And he's like, oh, no, you know, I was on the ground and whatever. And it's just a part of the fun, you know. It's like one of those things, but... You know, I, I kind of started filming because I really loved hunting and I loved the challenge of trying to film it. And I loved, for me personally, just being able to share that with friends and family and, and whatever. And now I get to share it with a lot more people, which I think is still fun because you get to share. It's like some of these experiences that I personally go on, I feel very fortunate that I get to do it. Uh, whether it's, you know, being out guiding, whether it's going on a trip of a lifetime to, for me, going to Newfoundland and, and getting to experience that. And I know that there's a lot of people that maybe didn't get to experience that or might not get to experience that. And when I was growing up, I, I really valued the, the things that I got to see. Uh, it taught me a lot about what's out there and, and got to see an adventure that maybe I didn't get to go on right now, but it gave me a dream to, to do it. And I remember the first sheep hunt I ever watched on something, and I'm like, wow, I really want to do that. I used to get these Eastman's videos would come in the mail. I think they were 
either VHS or DVDs. I think you got both at the time. It's kind of when they're transferring over. And I, me and my buddies, would we would wait and we'd get popcorn and we'd watch it and we'd call all our friends and we'd sit down and watch this video and we'd watch guys go into the backcountry with a backpack. And we're like, I didn't even know that was possible. You know? And it's like, whoa, look at what they're seeing. And, and, and it really like inspired me to do a lot of things in hunting that I'm very fortunate for getting to see it ahead of time. And so that, that's the reason that I really like to share the things is because you, you, you get to do that. So whether it's you hunting with your son and it connects with somebody that's like, you know, in Newfoundland, if you can't hunt till you're 16, it's really going to be hard to get kids into it because how many other sports and things and activities can they do that isn't age restrictive? If they can see somebody that's like going out and enjoying it with their dad and, and getting to experience these things like, oh, that looks pretty cool. Maybe that inspires someone else to take their kid out and do it. So I commend you for, for doing that because it, it does, you know, whether it's a couple people or a thousand people or 10,000 people, I think it's affecting, you know, showing hunting in a positive light. And obviously it can do the opposite, but um, I think that there's a lot of benefit to it. So uh, keep at it. Yep. Question. Got a comment and then question. Yeah. So a few years ago, I saw an interview that you did I believe it was in an, even a non-hunting media where you discussed the rescue of your then, I believe, girlfriend, now current wife. And uh, I just wanted to say that was very moving. Oh, thank you. I can't imagine what that was like to live through. Um, my questions, are you still shooting with a mouth tab? And if not, what does the rehab look like? Yeah, so I, I'm, kind, I'm in a transition between shooting the mouth tab uh, I, I kind of have this time where I don't necessarily have any bow hunts right now. So I'm kind of transitioning from the mouth tab to shooting a normal bow. Uh, to get back into it, I've lightened the poundage on, on the normal bow and I've been able to shoot it. I've got, uh, so a couple of the things that are affecting my shooting with it is I don't have the hand strength. So I guess I did like a squeeze test. This hand's 150, whatever they measure in PSI or something. And this is like 50. So there's a big disparity between the two, uh, the grip strength and everything. Um, the other thing is I've got a, a fairly extensive nerve pain on one side. So when I wear the wrist strap, it pushes pressure on that certain point. Now I can shoot and I'm, I'm the type of person like I will power through anything. doesn't matter. I'll muscle through it. But what I am very cognizant of is I do not want to affect my shooting uh, from some weird psychological thing of associating a shot with pain and then developing bad target panic in the future. So I'm really trying to ease into it in a right way and avoid uh, potential ruining the way that I shoot and the kind of way that my mind subconsciously makes that shot. I noticed, you know, if, if I start shoot a lot, the shots start to go bad or I start to get that like shoot now because, oh, here's this pain in your hand and other things. So what I'm doing is I'm doing a lot of physical therapy I'm, I'm working into it and I'm building up that strength, but also conditioning myself and, and doing it in a way where I don't develop that target panic or bad shooting in the future. Because that, you know, unfortunately I can't use like a, a handheld release. So it's, it's just better with the, the index release and the strap, but I'm, I, I am kind of easing my way into it, I guess, like in some ways babying myself. I, I don't want to like be the guy like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm whatever. You kind of get in your head like, Oh, I can do it. I can do it. But I also, I've had friends that were, are great hunters and then they've somehow developed, you know, it happens with a lot of people, like you just start getting target panic and that is the easiest way to become a very bad bow hunter very fast. And it's a very hard thing to work through. Uh, so I, I think that for me, I, I'm trying to work on that shot process and maybe changing a few things as well as I get into it of, of changing some stuff in my shot process to avoid uh, potential pitfalls down the road. Yeah, uh, the affiliation with, uh, I think, you know, I started working with Mountain Tough because when I'm doing the podcast, I think people would always ask questions to me about the fitness portion of hunting because as you guys know, I mean, I look around the room and this is a fairly fit crowd. It's bow hunters. It's not easy. You got to, you got to, be in there and i'm assuming it's a, a very tough crowd and a very you know like guys that can push through a lot of things so there's that mental toughness aspect but also that physical aspect of, of hunting especially bow hunting and for me i've kind of I, I mean i've been guiding now for i think this will be my 21st year of guiding 
Um, and a lot of that guiding is uh, for a long time year round. So I'm in the field hiking, carrying packs, packing out animals constantly, hundreds of days a year. And so for me to say like, how do you get in shape to do what you do? And I'm like, well, you, you get a guide job and you carry, you know, you carry out 45 elk a season and an elk season and then a couple other hundred other animals a year and you should be in shape for the hunt, right? Like it's just not feasible, but there are guys that they study as like they have a lab where they study human performance in the form of hunting and endurance and those kind of things. And like when you can match science with like a proven thing, that's easy for me to recommend to somebody and say like, this is how you do it because these guys are the expert. I'm the expert in how to get close to animals, how to do the hunt. These guys are expert on how to get you to that point to use those tips and tactics, if that makes sense. So that's kind of how I started that. And then through them, you know, just building that rehab back and building that strength back. I've been doing a lot of, a lot of stuff and talking with those guys because they're, they're experts in it. And then I also have some other physical therapy and other things. So if you are a person that had an injury and you're, you're trying to get back, it's a long road. And I think the hardest part isn't the physical part. It's just that mental part of knowing like, you know, I've been over, I'm going over a year of not really being able to use my dominant hand and it like it wears on you. So just knowing like, okay, I've got this goal in mind and, and here's how I'm going to do it. And really like keeping those goals and keeping to that physical therapy and, and getting through it. And then I think for me too, a big portion was just finding ways around it. You know, there's a lot of people, a lot of bow hunters that you get an injury and it's, it's devastating. I've had friends that tore like, well, my brother was playing hockey right before he drew the best antelope tag in the state of Nevada three days before the season's playing hockey, gets hit and tears his shoulder rotator cuff. And it's like, now he can't shoot. <laughs> you know, it's like, turn, luckily he had time to turn his tag back in and get his points back and all that. But, um, you know, that like being able to adapt and, and that kind of stuff, I think made me not even think about the injury and, and the surgeries and the surgeries that failed, multiple surgeries, whatever. I, I was like, I'm still bow hunting. I'm still doing what I love. Eh, it didn't really affect me as much. And I, I, I'm very fortunate for that. And I think that that's, a, if you are a bow hunter that goes through something like that, find other ways to shoot. Um, even just that, that, I don't know, for me, I've shot nearly every day since I was 15 years old. So to not pick up my bow and shoot was like, that's not going to happen. Um, so even if you aren't going to hunt with it, just finding ways to continue that shooting uh, within reason, I think is, is a good way to do it. of decoys and then using calls, uh, two of which were sheep and goat, and have had success with that. I'm just curious, always curious with high mountain guys. Have you used them and have you had success or not? Well, my brother killed his desert this year, or two years ago, uh, with, a, with a bow using a decoy that was mounted to his bow. He had to take a, a little bit further shot, but uh, I think like he, he was worried about it, like acting as a sail, but it worked like it got him into position because he had to crest over, he had to crest over a ridge and he's like, it pretty much got him his Ram because the, the Ram stopped and looked and stood there broadside as opposed to bolting and wasn't, didn't react to the shot or anything. And I think that, that helped him with that. I use a, I, I go constantly and i've i don't know how many sheep we've killed because of the blat like uh yeah. my friend shot a, a, a boone and crockett desert bighorn and our he's like unfortunately there's other people coming in and we were sitting on him 20 yards away but down the ridge and he's like some guys were coming down the ridge and gonna blow it out and uh he's like he looks at me he's like what do we do and i said we're gonna go i'm gonna go up there bleating and we're gonna get this ram to stop because we, we couldn't wait, like he was gonna get blown out by someone else. And uh, sure enough, it, it actually worked. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I definitely use those noises quite a bit for mountain goats, for, I've used it for kind of every sheep. They, sometimes, I don't even know if it's a sound that they make, but it catches them off guard. They're like, oh, sheep, you know? Just, <laughs> like, just yeah. a doe bleat. Yep, exactly, yeah. Yeah, a long time, when I first went on my first sheep hunt, I met a guy, he's just one of those guys that wanted to go on. Anytime somebody would draw a tag, you, you'll find in the sheep hunting community, there's people that just want to get out there and, and go on a sheep hunt. And I don't even know how he met this guy, but he had, he'd made kind of a custom call. He took a deer, this was 25 years ago, maybe even probably longer, just like this kind of custom call and gave it to me. He's like, here you go, I made this. And 
yeah, I mean, I've, I used that thing for years until I lost it. But, uh, yeah, I think sometimes that, that noise of even any animal, really, it's like that, that immediate, it kind of takes them out of maybe that danger. Because when you think about a, a wolf or a mountain lion, or it's not making a sound that is a ungulate sound when it's stalking in and blows it out. So if they didn't smell you or something happens, throwing out some kind of noise can be a game changer. Elk, deer, whatever. I mean, if, it, if when I go through my videos of like mule deer and anything, every time something gets spooked out, you hear a whistle and a or, or something. And half the time it works, sometimes it doesn't, but I always tend to make some kind of sound because it gets i've had a lot of success by being quick and, and making sound which kind of shocks them into what was that so given the how easy it is to access information online and stuff especially when heading to a new area where you plan to hunt especially uh for the instance of this question is for a guided hunt uh i just want to know if you have any comments how to to put towards people how important it is especially when you're going into an area that you you don't really know but you you know some people formulate these opinions online on how they're going to hunt in this area and how they should hunt i just would like maybe you could reiterate how important it is to trust your guide yeah definitely i mean you know if you're going on a guided hunt you you're hopefully paying for knowledge and information right you're you're paying because somebody like understands that area and knows knows that area knows whatever and so i think that that is important now i have seen people go on hunts and they're like that guy knew nothing <laughs> right so you kind of have to gauge it while you're there a little bit like it never hurts though either to to have some kind of knowledge of like where i'm at and, and what i'm doing and make sure everything's legal you hear the you know it's like there's a lot of i think more important than that is the, the responsibility of a hunter of like if you're going with someone else to still take responsibility yourself and like okay i need to know the rules i need to know the boundaries i need to know where i am is is where we're supposed to be and then when you're with somebody that that you know is like you you should have chosen that guide because of a reason of i value their what they know for this area right and so we see that you know i used to see that when i first started guiding is you'd get people and they'd be like oh well what like they've never killed an elk like when i first started guiding it the guy that i the outfitter that i worked for he would get the worst clients no offense to anyone that lives in pennsylvania but i he would go to the harrisburg pa show and that's like old school you know back that was the show where everyone would book their elk hunt to come out to montana and when i started my own outfit i was like I will never go to, I was like, I actually, I'm like, I'm not going to allow people from Pennsylvania hunt with me because they would get these guys that just, but I didn't know what the outfitter was selling them either. Right. So they would show up and be like, oh yeah, well, like you put them on a good bull. I'm like, he'd be like, is that 350? And we're like, you're in a general area, dude. <laughs> like this is, that's the best elk you're going to see. Like that's probably the best elk we'll see all season. And they're like, no, no, no. I've got a friend that hunted in Montana and he shot, usually they'll show me a picture of like a high fenced elk, their buddy shot. And they're like disappointed, you know, so just, uh, you know, trusting the person that's on the ground and you're paying them for a reason to hunt a certain uh, species. And so, you know, trust that information and, and you're going to learn a lot more and, and be able to, the other thing is like be able to keep up people ask like oh, i'm going on a guided hunt i'm not doing a, a diy thing but what can i do be in shape shoot whatever you're shooting really well those are two of the best things that you can do for yourself for success you know we've all every guide's got those horror stories you know and those are the ones you tend to tell i try not to tell them publicly but um we've all had some really bad clients but i think that for the most part you know for the most part guys are good and they understand like oh I, this is i'm paying for this expertise or this expert for a good experience so you should trust what they kind of say and know as a good place to start uh do you have any thoughts on carbon versus aluminum bows carbon versus aluminum bows um you know i don't have a lot of experience with carbon bows uh, i've shot uh one carbon bow for a while you know when they I, I really liked the idea of a lighter bow but i shoot a heavier bow real good so the first carbon bow that i shot i was like oh this is a real light bow this is nice and then i put a ton of weight on it i was like well i don't know it, it, you know I, I i honestly i'm not opposed to shooting a carbon bow um i just haven't really you know i, I shot one for a little while and just kind of ended up i didn't really like the bow personally like i didn't shoot it great so i switched bows and uh so i think it's just more personal preference i don't have any qualms either i like carbon in a lot of different products for me, I just don't 
necessarily know if it mattered so much for me personally. So, you know, I think bows are one of those things like I'll never talk bad about a bow because that's like talking bad about somebody's wife or girlfriend. You know, it's like everybody's got their one and I know the ones that I really like and and shoot really well. You know, so I would never try like there's certain bows that like I I actually won a bow in a Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation elk calling contest. And uh, I won't say the brand, but I won this bow and was like, I needed a new bow. I, I mean, I, I was, I've been shooting my bow for, I don't know, a very long time. And so I, I was like, okay, I'm going to use this bow. And that bow was cursed, man. I could not hit anything with that bow. Like everything that could go wrong would go wrong. I just didn't shoot it well. I didn't like it. So I gave it away. And I told my buddy, I said, I, I gave it to a guy. And I said, hey, you know, I'm giving you a bow. as a guy who wanted to get into bow hunting. I don't know why I'm telling the, a bow story here, but uh, I think it's a good story. So he, he, I, it's like he's getting into bow hunting, but he never really hunted with a bow. And I said, hey, I got this bow for you. I'm just going to give it to you. You know, you can, you can shoot it. But it had a real shallow valley and it was pretty jumpy. And I said, whatever you – he said, hey, I'll go pick it up. And I wasn't home. I said, do not draw that bow back without an arrow in it because he didn't know anything about bow hunting. He's like, okay. So I, he gets a – I get a – like a message from him he drew the bow back without and he drew it back with his fingers and he never drawn a bow back and it jumped forward it essentially dry fired cut the string the string whipped around and cut through his hand and his wrist and this he's got a permanent s-shaped scar on his hand uh from drawing the bow back so he felt bad he hurt <laughs> um he took the bow in he's like i don't know if this is for me took the bow in, got it fixed i was like okay it's fixed so i was like well i had another buddy that want, needed a bow so i was like here's this bow i told him the story of what happened and he's like yeah okay so he's on his couch and he's like this guy had shot a bow and he's like yeah and he's looking at the bow thinking about shooting it whatever draws it back it jumps forward he gets his fingers caught, but so he didn't dry fire because he held on tighter, but he got his fingers caught between the cam and the string and thought he was gonna lose his fingers as they're turning purple, put his foot in there and drew it and got his fingers out. And I was like, some bows are just like that. You know, you just can't, no matter who you give it to is like, I mean, I missed a, a, a shot. I took that bow on a, the first time I took it on was a doll sheep hunt and uh, smoked a rock five feet or five, I don't know. 15 inches in front of me and uh, watched broadheads and carbon arrow fly all over the mountain and was like, that sucked. You know, some bows are just like that. So I've had, you know, I think that's a story to say a bow can be a very personal thing. There's certain bows that I prefer because I shoot them really well and they have attributes of what I look for in a bow. And that's kind of, and then, I don't know, I think that that's like the best recommendation for materials and other stuff is, and, and shoot a few, find one. And if it's like, if you get a bow in your hand that gives you some kind of, whether it's a mental thing or gives you, like it's giving you a bad time, get rid of it and get a new one. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thank you guys so much for, for jumping in here. Thank you guys for, uh, I mean, this, this conversation got so hot, we set off the fire alarm, but good, good tips, hot tips, hot tips, lots of hot tips here. Uh, thank you guys so much. Um, I'll stick around for a little bit. I'd love to say hello and, and shake your hand or maybe we'll do fist bumps. I've been doing a lot of handshaking, getting the hand fired up, put me back in my bow shooting a little bit. But um, thank you guys so much for taking the time this morning and enjoy the rest of the Pope and Young Club. Probably see a lot of you at dinner tonight. So uh, thank you guys so much. Well, everyone, I hope you really enjoyed that podcast. You know, one of the things I really like doing about these live podcasts is the diversity of questions and the ability about certain topics that might get missed otherwise to come up. Also, the range of places where people are from, it really inspires a lot of these new topics. It's really fun for me to get to do these. So with hunting, you know, there's so much to learn depending on the terrain and species. I really think that these Q and A's can open up a lot of questions to a variety of hunts that probably many of you are gonna be going on. You know, when it comes to being a more successful hunter, also one of the things that I think is really important is time and time again, it keeps coming up is just understanding the species that you're hunting. And I really think that that's what outdoor class does really well because it dives into topics and just breaks down strategies species by species. 
You can always use code LiveWild. You'll get a discount on the subscription. And you're going to find on their my course on mule deer. Also, there's stuff on e-scouting, elk calling, pronghorn hunting, late season rifle elk hunting. Whatever it is, you're going to find a course on it that's really going to break it down in a way that's easy to see and easy to understand and also a lot of fun to watch. So I highly suggest those for guys that are out there and going, hey, I want to up my game. That's a way to do it. And just understanding, especially if you're going out after a species that maybe you've never hunted before, diving in and seeing how are these tactics different than what I'm doing already and really seeing it from some people that have put in the time and and I consider experts in the field that they're talking on. You know, also as we start to dive into this preseason prep and planning, another product that I think works really well is Go Hunt Insider or the Go Hunt Explorer maps because they're a good way to understand the area as we start to build out this hunt plan, understanding, okay, what kind of success am I looking at? What does this area entail? What are some traditional areas where animals are concentrated all that stuff you can find in the insider and then you can take that over to the explorer maps and start doing a lot of your e-scouting i really believe it's one of the most valuable tools out there and that's why i've partnered with them also when i partner with a company i one of the things that i always ask for is a benefit for the listeners of this podcast because you guys are the people that are out there that you're you're dedicating time to listen to how to be better hunters and so being able to give you the tools that help at a better rate, I think is, is very important to me personally. So you can always use code live wild on that. If you do the insider membership, you get all the maps, all the tag planning software. Plus you'll get $50 in the go hunt gear shop. You can just spend that however you want. So that's a essentially like $50 back to use on gear. There's no minimum purchase or anything like that. And then, you know, whether you're a member or not, I'm not sure if you guys know this, but you can always use code live wild in the gear shop for a discount so if you're going to buy a pair of binoculars a pack trekking poles whatever as long as it's not already on sale you can just use code live wild at any time and get i think it's it, you know the discount depends but it's around a, a five to ten percent discount on most of the gear in there so that's one of the things like most of this gear never goes on sale because it's some of the best hunting gear out there and they probably you know like a lot of it they can barely keep up with demand as it is. So that's a good way. If there's something you're going to buy for hunting, check it out because it might be a place where you can get it at the best price compared to anywhere else. So that's just something to think about. I really appreciate you guys listening in. Thank you, everyone that participated in this live q and I really appreciate it. And I'm going to say until next week, live wild. Catch you guys later. 